Matthew 9, 35 through chapter 10, verse 8. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kristen. What we've been doing all fall is we're, we're looking at this theme that you see pop up over and over in the Bible um, that's called the kingdom of God, which is a very big concept. It can be very confusing. It can be very vague. And so it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. And so we're spending uh, all fall to try to unpack it and talk about it. And um, what we've seen is that the kingdom is really about God's uh, rule, his reign, our, our in-house uh, shorthand definition that we've been saying around here is that the, the kingdom is the upside-down, already-not-yet revolution of God making all things new. And last week, we talked about how do you enter that kingdom? What does it look like to enter it? And then uh, for our purposes this morning, I want to talk about what does it look like to participate in the kingdom? What does it look like to actually do life in the kingdom? And to do that, um, the way I want to set this up is to have you think about uh, that great Pixar movie, The Incredibles. You remember The Incredibles? Great, awesome. Um, It it focuses in on these superheroes who have these superhuman powers, and they're crime fighters. Um, They're called the supers. But the premise, the start of the movie, is that all the supers had to go into hiding because uh, people were suing them. There was litigation because of the amount of damage that they did to the city while they're trying to fight the bad guys. It was a hilarious um, premise. But you have these uh, normal-looking human beings with superhuman powers. But, you know, they're sitting behind desks, and they're in construction, and they're students, and they're just kind of normal people blending in. And we focus in on uh, the life and the story of Mr. Incredible, who in his heyday was you know, super strong and muscular and full of energy and vitality. But now he is, uh, he's wearing a tie and he's sitting at his desk job and he's kind of let himself go and he's uh, totally bored, lifeless, stuck in a rut and he's just longing to get back to his life as a, as a superhero, as a crime fighter, longing for more than this. Because he's capable of more than this. And his whole life, in many ways, has just been reduced down to this boring existence. 
And I bring that up, I start that way because in many ways I think that that is a, is a human experience, a universal human experience where we long for more than this. And yet our lives in many ways feel, uh, feel reduced. But we, we long for more, we want more. I mean, who of us doesn't long to wake up every day and feel like you're giving yourself to something that really matters, that's really worthy of all of your time and all of your energy and all of your effort, and you really feel like you're making an impact in the world? And yet, for a lot of us, um, we, I would say the, the middle class or middle upper class American existence and experience kind of goes like this. When we're younger, we're told uh, you need to apply yourself and work hard in school. You need to study and really kind of, you need to work hard. Okay, why? <clears throat> well, so you can get good grades. Okay, why do I need to get good grades? Because if you get good grades, you'll get into a good college. Why, why do I need to get into a good college? Well, because that'll set you up to get a good job. Why do I need to get a good job? Because then you'll get money, and if you have money, then you can afford a nice house to live in a nice neighborhood. Why do I need to live in a nice neighborhood? Well, so that you can send your kids to a good school. Why do you want to send your kids to a good school? So that they can work hard and get good grades. And round and round we go, and on and on we go. And for a lot of us, this is just our life. We're just living this story on autopilot. For a lot of us, we're like Mr. Incredible. Bored out of our minds. And the way that we get through this experience of this story is we just distract ourselves to death. We scroll, we uh, distract ourselves with shopping or with golf or with bourbon or with opioids or whatever. Just give me something to numb myself to get through this life because it is so reduced and it's so boring. And yet, here comes Jesus. And he's talking about this thrilling revolution of him making all things new. And he's inviting you and me to participate in it. You want to talk about purpose. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, I don't often quote Mark Zuckerberg, but Mark Zuckerberg once uh, was giving a commencement address at Harvard. And here's how he defined purpose. He said, purpose is that sense that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. I think he's right on this one. He's right on this. What could be bigger than ourselves than God's redemptive agenda to make all things new? It doesn't get much bigger than, oh, I don't know, redeeming the planet. But he's inviting us to participate into that. And so what I want to do is flesh this out this morning. What, what does it look like to be swept up into this big redemptive project that God has underway? And I think it looks like two things. It looks like to be swept up into something that is cosmic and to be swept up into something that is specific. So that's what I want to try to unpack. What does it look like for, for us to be swept up into this, the mission, God's mission of making all things new? It's something that is very cosmic, and it is something very specific. So let's talk about it. What do I mean by um, being swept up into something cosmic? Well, look at the passage, and we're going to look kind of, we're going to start in the middle. We're looking at the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. So let's just start by looking the beginning of this sandwich, or the middle of this sandwich in verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, and he, that's talking about Jesus, it says, he called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, this is a very 
specific, unique situation. He's, he's gathering his disciples and giving them authority in this really unique moment to do some pretty amazing stuff. And he tells them in verse 5 and 6, he wants them to go out. And he wants them to not go to the Gentiles, but only to the people of Israel. And again, like I said, this is a very specific, unique situation. However, I do think there are general principles you can, you can see from this, general ideas. And the first pattern that I want you to see is, is what he asks his followers to do in verse 5. Or what, what, what does he do in verse 5? It says, these 12 Jesus sent out. So verse 1, you see he calls them to himself. Verse 5, he sends them out. That's the pattern. He calls people to himself, and then he turns around and sends them right back out. I heard the late Tim Keller, Tim Keller describe uh, Jesus as a spiritual tornado. You know, you think about a tornado, it's always sucking things into it, and then it turns around and spits it right back out. That's Jesus. He never draws you to himself without also turning around and sending you out into the world. To do what, though? Well, look at what he tells his disciples to do in verse 7. He says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So you got two big ideas here. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to proclaim the kingdom, and I want you to heal people's diseases. Proclaim the kingdom, heal people's diseases. Here's what's interesting about this. If you rewind and you go to the chapter right before this, chapter 9, look at verse 35. What do we see Jesus himself doing? And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and, oh, what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So you know what this shows you? This shows you that Jesus calls his followers to participate in the same work that he's doing. Which means that when Jesus calls you to himself, he, he's not calling you to just be a recipient of blessing, but to be an instrument of blessing, to be pulled out from your life and to be brought into this massive cosmic spiritual grand drama that he is involved in, which is redeeming, fixing the world, making all things new. He's calling us to participate in this big thing that he's doing. Now, I want to take a big risk this morning and talk about the University of Tennessee football uh, for just a moment. Forgive me, but we're going there. Um, there's a story, some of y'all might know this story. It's a, it's a true story, it's a fascinating story. Um, from 2011, uh, the University of Tennessee was preparing to play a home football game against MTSU, and the coach at the time, uh, Derek Dooley, had a first string kicker that had recently been injured and uh, he was working on this injury, and they come to discover during warm-ups that he's not ready to go in. He can't play. And so that's kind of, you know, NBD. We'll just go with our backup. They go with the second-string kicker. So the second-string kicker's warming up. It's about an hour until game time starts. And the second-string kicker injures himself during warm-ups, which I know is only, you know, only UT. <laughs> this could be true. It pulled a muscle or something during warm-ups. So they got to go with the third string, the backup to the backup kicker, which is a guy named Derek Broadus. The problem was that Derek Broadus wasn't in Neyland Stadium. He wasn't suiting up, didn't have pads on. Wasn't, he was at a frat house pre-gaming with his buddies, planning on just watching it on TV just like everyone else that day. 
had no expectation he's going to be in the game. And so the, the coach literally sends a police escort from the stadium to the frat house to go retrieve Derek Broaddus to go play in this game. The, um, uh, the coach later said, quote, in an interview, quote, an intoxicated Broaddus is better than nobody. And so they bring this kid to the stadium. They give him a breathalyzer. They realize he's good enough to play. They throw pads on him, and he goes and plays the game. And uh, just for the record, he makes all three extra field goal, you know, uh, extra point kicks. He makes the only field goal that was uh, kicked in the game, and Tennessee won the game 24 to nothing, which is not bad when you think dude probably had hot pockets and natty light for lunch, and that was uh, that was that was his, that was the game. But I bring that up because you think about that kid sitting on the couch, watching TV, eating a hot pocket. And uh, in come the police, and they say, hey, get off the couch. You are suiting up, and the game starts in an hour. I bring that up because in many ways, I think that's the experience of what it feels like to become a Christian. To become a Christian is really, you're you're just kind of doing your thing. You're doing your life. You're going through the motions. You're doing your normal life, and in barges Jesus. And he says, I want you to get off the couch, and I want you to get in the game and be a part of this big thing that I'm doing in the world. That's what Jesus does. He calls us out of our normal, self-consumed, self-oriented, small way of just doing our life. And he says, I want you to live for something bigger than that. And when he does that, you start asking different questions. You start saying, you, you stop asking, what's in it for me? And you start asking, okay, well, how can I give myself away? What can I do to benefit somebody else? You get pulled from being a spectator, a consumer, into being an active participant, brought into the stuff that he's doing in the world. Now, I I know not everybody in this room is a Christian or would call yourself a Christian. Uh, Many of us do, though. And for those of us that do, you may be hearing this and think, okay, but like, I I like Jesus. I'm down with like the church thing. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? But I don't know about this whole getting, like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know how to get involved. It's not like I'm equipped for this. I'm not trained for this. I'm not good at this kind of stuff. Um, Besides, I've got my own junk. I've got my own issues. I'm, you know, I still struggle. Like, I, I don't, I don't have it all together. Look at this list of people um, that you get in verses 2 through 4. You get a list of the disciples, the followers of Jesus. Look at this list. These guys were not uh, seminary trained. These were not professional clergy. These were just normal fishermen and tax collectors. They didn't have their stuff together either. I mean, I love this detail that they put at the end of verse 4. It intentionally includes this detail that one of them betrayed Jesus. Which means if that's one of the people involved in the kingdom, the bar is pretty low. If Judas Iscariot can do it, you and I can do it. So the question that you and I have to wrestle with is this. If you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, are you in the game? Or are you on the couch? Are you on the couch? Are you a spectator? Are you a uh, consumer? Or are you a participant? Is your life swept up into this grand, beautiful, bigger story? Or are you just doing the middle class, middle, upper class American thing? 
Now, you may hear all this and think, okay, it still sounds pretty vague. What am I supposed to even do? I'm willing to do it, but what do I do? This is all very vague, very esoteric, swept up into the cosmic kingdom. Okay, this gets really practical, though. Because we're not just swept up into this big esoteric thing, we're also swept up into something really specific. And that's what I want to try to unpack with you next. How does the mission sweep us up into something specific? Well, look at, um, look at verse 8 and 9, or sorry, 7 and 8 of chapter 10 uh, with me. What were Jesus' followers sent out to do? Two things. Remember, proclaim the kingdom and heal people's diseases. You see word and you see deed. You see uh, Jesus wants them to meet people's spiritual needs and meet their physical, material needs. Proclaim the kingdom, uh, announce the arrival, announce the gospel, and move towards meeting people's physical, real, material needs in the world. Word and deed. Now, you have Christians that naturally tend toward one side or the other. You have kind of word Christians who are all about theology and podcasts and the Bible, and we like words. I mean, this is, this is where I lean. I'm in the word business. I'm doing words as I speak. And uh, if this is you, you know, you're the kind of person that when someone talks to you and uh, they're going through a problem or whatever, your solution is a book or an article, like, which is not bad. We need books. We need articles. Read this. But when it comes to engaging the city and rolling up our sleeves and getting involved, we tend to shrink away from that. We, that's not really our thing. That's not our lane. And others of us are not word people. We're deed people. You're the activist type. In fact, when I first got to uh, this church a couple of years ago, somebody from this church once told me, you know, what we, what we need, what Midtown needs is not more Bible studies. We don't need more Christians sitting in a room, navel-gazing, talking about their feelings and reading the Bible together. We need Christians out there doing it, working with the poor and getting engaged in politics and involved in education and involved in the judicial system. We need people out there doing the thing. Which, by the, by the way, just for the record, this does not mean you do these things in vocational ministry. This doesn't mean quit your job. You can do word and deed as an artist, as a janitor, as a, as a teacher, as you know, a student, whatever. But you see how Jesus brings both of these together beautifully. He doesn't say, pick one, whichever one you like. Pick which thing is uh, most natural for you, and you can avoid the other. He says, no, we're called to do both. And so let's just be, um, let's be honest, and let's just name the elephant in the room for a second. We're a church that leans towards word over deed. And there's reasons for this. We're in, we're in a tradition that really values preaching and teaching, and it's good. Nothing wrong with that. The problem with that is our tradition uh, came out of a group of Christians that were mostly white, mostly Southern, Bible-believing Christians, and mostly white, Southern, Bible-believing Christians have a history and a tendency, at least in the history of our country, to retreat from the needs of the city, to get away from poverty, to get away from people that believe things differently from us, 
So we like the preaching, we like the gospel stuff, we like Bible stuff, don't really want to get involved in social issues, don't want to get involved in the, in the, uh, in, in the needs of, of, of people around us. And that's a sad, la- a sad legacy of us, for, of ours. The good news is that is not the legacy of the capital C church. That's not the legacy of the church at large. I mean, think about this. Um, have you ever thought about why is it that in Memphis our hospitals are called uh, Methodist, Baptist, St. Francis. You know, we, we used to live in um, Charlotte. One of, the big, one of the big hospitals in Charlotte was Presbyterian Hospital. All the historic churches in Chicago are named after people in the Bible. You have St. Joseph's Hospital. You have St. Mary's Hospital. You know why um, that's the case? It's because for 2,000 years, it was the church that took care of the sick. Nobody else wanted to. Nobody else wanted to mess with sick people, so the church did. That's our legacy. In fact, to make this even more local, more specific to us, you'll know, many of you know, that in the year 1878, when the yellow fever plague epidemic blasted through Memphis, it just about uh, destroyed the city. 5,000 people died, which was massive numbers at the time. Tons of people left the city. I mean, the city almost didn't recover. And if you read stories of that summer, they're horrifying. I mean, you want to get prepared for Halloween, read some stories of what it was looked like to go through that. Horrific. There were so many dead bodies piled up on the streets, piled up on the uh, sidewalks. They couldn't get rid of the bodies fast enough. It was that horrific. Of, of course, obviously, at the time, they didn't know what was happening. They didn't know why, why people were getting sick and why people were dying. Uh, people were fleeing. Businesses were boarding up uh, their shops. Houses were, everybody was locking their doors. Everybody was kind of locking down. It was one of those horrible things. And yet, there was a, there was a church downtown, St. Mary's Episcopal Cathedral. There's two priests and four nuns that decided to convert their sanctuary, to convert their building into a clinic, into a, into a center to help people that got sick. And so they stuck around. While everybody else was running for the hills, uh, these Christians, they stuck around to tend to the sick and to tend for the, to the people that were dying. And, of course, they too got sick. They got yellow fever, and they died. They're known as the martyrs of Memphis. You want to Google them and look them up later? The martyrs of Memphis. In fact, you want to go visit their gravesite. Uh, all of them are buried at Elmwood Cemetery right down the street. That's the legacy of the church. Yes, to preach the gospel. Yes, to announce the arrival of the kingdom. Yes, to evangelize our neighbors and to use our words to tell them about Jesus and to care for the poor and the sick and the dying and the needy and the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. That's the calling. And so here's the question for you this morning. What does it look like for you to get engaged in that? We'll just talk about deed for this morning. Since we're word people, let's talk about what we're not good at. Here, here's, what, here's the good news is that you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You don't have to create a mercy ministry nonprofit. There's tons of stuff already right here, right around uh, Midtown, that you just can plug into what they're doing. So, for example, you have Hope House, which is a, a clinic and a resource center that um, helps people uh, that are HIV positive, half a mile from where we're sitting right now. 
You have uh, Isaiah 117 House, which is a, a, a new thing in, in Memphis that's um, over by Crosstown. It is a home that is devoted towards uh, providing sanctuary for children as they're, a, as they're in transition, waiting to be placed into a foster home. You have Asha's Refuge over here on East Parkway, which is a ministry, an organization that helps provide aid and support for immigrant families that are moving into Memphis and needing all kinds of help and all kinds of support. You got Room in the Inn, which is uh, Idlewild Prez right over here on Union, uh, provides shelter for people that are needing shelter. They also have a ministry over there called More Than Meals, in which they provide hot meals for the hungry. You've got First Congo, which has a uh, food pantry. They're providing food for the hungry right here around us. In fact, you can throw a rock in lots of different directions and hit lots of different under-resourced Memphis public schools right from where we're sitting. On and on and on and on we can go. And many of you are involved in these different avenues. And many of us are not. So what would it look like for you to pick one? Not all of them. That would be nuts. But to pick one thing and say, I'm going to really drill down. I'm going to give myself over to try to meet the physical, material needs of Midtown. Stuff that's already happening. It's just set up, ready for me to just walk in and start volunteering and helping out with. What would it look like for you to get in the game and get off the couch? Here's a question for you. How are we feeling at this point? You know, this um, sermon started talking about uh, purpose, and uh, you're thinking, oh, this is going to be inspirational. This is going to be uh, exciting. I'm going to live for something bigger than myself, and then we get going, and you start to feel a little guilty. You start feeling like, uh, I should probably be doing more. I know I'm not doing enough. And then you get to this point, and you're like, okay, preacher, being a little pushy. We're, we're busy people. We don't have margin to just throw another massive thing into our life. This doesn't sound convenient. This sounds hard. And the reason why it sounds hard is because it is. There's nothing easy. There's nothing convenient about participating in the mission of God's kingdom. It is hard. It is, it is inconvenient. It is tremendously costly. So here's the million-dollar question. Why in the world would you do it? Why would you make space for word and deed to be gathered up into this big thing that God's doing? Well, why does Jesus do it? it tells you. Look at, um, look at chapter 9, verse 36. What motivates Jesus? It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Jesus isn't motivated by disgust. He doesn't see people and he's just revolted that they are oh, these gross sinners need me to step in and do something for him. He's motivated by compassion. He cares about them. His heart breaks for them. I mean, look at what it says after that. They, it says that they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You picture a group of um, sheep without a shepherd just out there in the wild, totally vulnerable, totally exposed. Wolves could just walk up and just have a, have a buffet. They're sitting ducks. They're helpless. And so Jesus has a heart for people. And he says, I'll step in and I'll be the good shepherd. And I will let the wolves devour me. 
I'll protect them. I'll step in, in between the wolves and these helpless sheep. I'll step in and let the wolves destroy me. I'll hand myself over to the wicked authorities so that I'll get devoured. I'll get destroyed on the cross. So I'll die in order to protect them so that they might live. I'll be condemned so that they might be forgiven. Now, you think about this story, sheep, shepherd, who are you in the story? You're the sheep. I'm the sheep. We're the ones that are lost and helpless and harassed, and yet Jesus is the one that has compassion for us. And he comes and he gives his life away for us, completely by grace. That's what he wants you to know in your soul. As he sends you out, he wants you to be in touch with his compassion and his grace for you, not so that you're sent out into the world with feelings of guilt. I really should be doing more. Okay, I'll do it. The preacher guy said, I got to do some stuff. I might as well do it. You're not sent out into the world with pride. Oh, this is what good Christians do. Good Christians get out there and we get busy. No, you're sent out there with an experience of his grace. In fact, this is what Jesus wants to drill down into them. Look at verse, nine, or verse 8, chapter 10, verse 8. He says, you received freely without paying, therefore give without pay. He wants his disciples and he wants you and me to know you got into the kingdom. You received it. You, you got all the benefits of Jesus and the kingdom and everything else freely. You didn't have to pay for it. You didn't have to buy it. You didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to jump through hoops. It was just given to you. You didn't have a resume to impress him with. In fact, Jesus is saying you had no resume. You were disasters, train wrecks, and dumpster fires. And I just freely decided to give to the most least deserving, and you just received. Here's why this matters. Because if you really do think in your heart of hearts, the reason why I'm participating in the kingdom is because I'm a little bit smarter than other people. Or I get it. You know, I get it. Maybe because I, um, I'm a little bit more spiritually in tune. Some of these other people, I don't know. They're not, they don't get it like I do. Or maybe I'm a little bit more uh, moral. I have a little bit more virtue. Even if you have a fraction of that in your soul and you go out into the world and you try to do some word you go try to do some word stuff, people are going to smell the judgment from a mile away. They'll smell the superiority. You go out there and you try to go do deed stuff with that disposition, uh, they'll smell the savior complex. They'll smell the paternalism. And they'll be right to be revolted by it. And then when people are revolted and not appreciating or noticing your hard work, You'll be miffed and annoyed. These people don't appreciate what I'm doing for them. I don't have to do this. This is charity work. I'm trying to care for the for people less fortunate than me, and if they're going to appreciate it, they're not going to thank me. But once you realize, when grace gets in your being, grace is what destroys all of that stuff. Because what grace tells you and me is that we are helpless and harassed and lost sheep and Jesus did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And now that you have a taste of his love and his compassion, his grace for you, you know when you go out into the world and you serve Midtown and you serve our city and you serve the world, you're not doing so from a position of pride or a position of guilt. You're doing so with compassion and with humility and with love and with purpose. You're actually swept up into this bigger, more beautiful story.
Jesus is calling you and he's calling me to get in the game. And the question for you and for me is how will you respond? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would be so moved by your compassion towards us, so overwhelmed by your grace towards us, that we would become the kind of people that are bold with our words, that are not afraid to announce the gospel of the kingdom, that have a heart to move towards our neighbors, to build relationships so that one day maybe they might know this Jesus that is this gracious. And I pray, Father, that you would have us move towards what is broken in our city, the parts of our city that are frayed, where there are people that have fallen through the cracks, people that are hurting, hungry, sick, needy. Father, help us to move towards them, not from a position of needing to save anybody, but from a position of humility, maybe even a position of needing to learn from these people, needing to receive something from those that are different from us. Father, would you um, transform our imaginations that we might see our very lives and our families and our livelihoods and our vocations as all being swept up into something that is bigger than ourselves, more beautiful than maybe the small, reduced lives that we've tried to reduce them down to. Only you can do this, so please do it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.